Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1965 Orson Welles film Chimes at Midnight. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, this was really interesting because I have been a fan of Citizen Kane for decades, uh, but I have basically not really seen other things Orson Welles has, has done other than um, I watched his Macbeth in high school really just because it was the only copy of that, that or the only film version of Macbeth I could find at the library. Um, so I don't have a lot of experience with him. So this was really interesting to watch. Um, let's start with, uh, with your history with this film. So here's my question. What is your history with this film? When did you see it? And was this a movie that for you for a time was kind of a ghost story movie where it's like, I know this exists, but, I'm not able to get my hands on it to see it. I know in Roger Ebert's review, he talks about this. He reviewed it in 1968. And then there was about a 35-year gap where he said he couldn't see it. He couldn't find it somewhere. And then eventually he does. Yeah, I think by, by the time I found it, Sam, it was in a, um, it was actually a VHS tape. So it was one of the earlier, there's been a couple of different restorations. So it was one of the earlier restorations um i'm not sure which print it was based on and i probably would have been about oh maybe 10 15 years ago when i was working on my shakespeare and film class so yeah you're right it was it was a kind of a ghost story it was this film that, and and I, I did know about it for a few years before the video became available i think at one point there was a uh europe uh region dvd that i knew i couldn't see but i did get a hold of the of the of the videotape uh, and so that would have been maybe 10 or a dozen years ago or so. So having this be a movie that you were aware of, but couldn't see when you finally saw it, what were your initial, uh, initial impressions on seeing this film? Well, the, the helpful thing about being aware of the film before you see it, especially, uh, one of Wells's later works is I was prepared for some of the technical issues, which the DVD has cleaned up a lot. You know, the one that I saw had a lot of issues with dialogue being unsynced. Um, the lack of clarity of dialogue is partly intentional on Wells's part. But I was prepared for imperfect uh, technical elements of the film. So that was helpful. You know, I wasn't taken aback the way the audiences in the, in the, in the 60s were. But I was also prepared for things like the Battle of Shrewsbury. Um, and so I kind of knew there were some great moments coming at the same time. Yeah, I will say you had prepared me for for because you had talked about the audio issues. So I kept thinking, okay, I know this is going to be rough, and I, I watched the Criterion Channel uh, version mm -hmm. of it, and uh, it was pretty great actually mm -hmm. in terms of the audio. Um, there there were a few moments where where it's like, okay, part of it is, and I actually I actually liked this when you had mentioned that you know most of the audio was 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 redubbed. I I thought this that was going to take me out of it, but what it meant was that so much of the dialogue was so clear. Mm -hmm. It was so clear to hear what people said. And this is obviously, you know, when you're doing something like Shakespeare, I, I assume that the words matter a lot. So it was mm -hmm. nice to be able to really uh, hear things pretty clearly articulated. So I could, I could understand it because it's always a challenge. The first time you watch a Shakespeare play, if you haven't read it before, and I will say I had not read uh, Henry, the either Henry, the fourth play um, you're always having that challenge of, um, trying to take the, take in the language for the first time. So um, I heard one one reviewer described it as it's sort of like a radio play. It has the audio quality of a radio play, but then vi you have all you have all the visual elements as well. And I actually oddly thought that 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 strengthened it to me, even though it was clear, like sort of like I can hear hear these people a little too well. Well, that's certainly the case. I mean, it's interesting, you know, you have somebody like John Gielgud, um, you know, the, the uh, playing Henry IV and kind of, you know, the quintessential Shakespearean actor of his generation, along with Laurence Olivier and Ralph Richardson, who's also in as the narrator. And, you know, so Gielgud's speeches are, are crystal clear, classic Shakespearean delivery. But then in the tavern scenes, um, Wells is, I think Wells is actually less concerned at times about the, about the language. I mean, it was, it, his relationship with Shakespeare is interesting. He loves Shakespeare. He worked with Shakespeare his whole life. And yet at the same time, 
he wasn't above fooling around with Shakespeare, rearranging dialogue, and not worrying if you got every word because he was also very interested in what was going on visually uh, at the same time. So even in the places in this film where um, sometimes the dialogue is a bit hard to pick up on, at least it is for me, for my ears, um, it doesn't actually matter because the visuals communicate so much. Absolutely. Um now, I want to think about about Wells playing with Shakespeare because here's, I know I, I you mentioned last week that we're gonna watch maybe a series of Shakespeare adaptations, um, and adaptation is I think an important word to to think about here. Um, obviously, this is Shakespeare, right? Obviously, he is being Falstaff as a Shakespeare character. Much, if not all, of the the lines in the f film other than the the voiceover history stuff comes out of Shakespeare plays. So obviously this is Shakespeare, but as a scholar of, as an English literature scholar, at the same time, I wonder, is this Shakespeare? And, and here's, here's the analogy I'll give you, which is a flawed analogy. <laughs> I like the Beatles a lot, right? The Beatles are some of the, they wrote some of the great, greatest pop songs of all time. Um, but if I were to mix together four Beatles songs uh, and kind of mash them up into one song. Would that be a Beatles song? Even if it's all, it is the Beatles, but it's not something they made. So like, is this Shakespeare? Does that question make sense? Yeah, the question makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's a very good question, um, uh, Sam. I, so, so here's one way that I would answer the question. Um, I'm gonna answer it in two ways. First way is, it, would I tell students, if you want to experience a performance of the Henry ad, watch this film if i were teaching a shakespeare class would i do that i would not and so so in that sense i would say no it's not shakespeare um but in the second sense it's it gets to get back to your beatles analogy it's wells's shakespeare so the film would not exist without shakespeare but the film would also not exist without would not exist without wells and so there's, I mean, I think that when you th to think about Shakespearean adaptations, Wells's version of Shakespeare is is sui generis. I mean, I, I think a Wells Shakespeare film is its own genre. So there are things that Wells does in, um, let's call it a post a, a posthumous collaboration with Shakespeare. It's it's almost as though Wells has put himself in the position of saying, okay, Shakespeare's given us this plot, he's given us these characters, he's given us this dialogue. That's great. That's a starting point for some of the things that I want to do. And so I think I I would call it a collaborative uh, effort in that respect. So is that is that something that's almost uh, for somebody who goes into this film who's familiar with these plays? Does it does it sort of make it more exciting to be like? I get to see something instead of, so I will say, you know, I, I don't have a lot of history with Shakespeare adaptations. I've seen, uh, I will say the partially because of my age, the, the Shakespearean actor of my lifetime is Kenneth Branagh, right? Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of his things. Yeah. And, and I would say, I was trying to list like, what are the, uh, and I'm not saying these are the best, but what are my favorite sort of, uh, film adaptations of Shakespeare? Two out of the three are Branagh. Mm -hmm. Um, so I love, I, Henry V is, I love Branagh's Henry V. Mm -hmm. It's basically a sports movie. Like, it's mm -hmm. it's great. Um, and I actually loved his Hamlet. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's like four hours, and I feel like Hamlet was a play I was very familiar with, and he made sense out of things that I had never really picked up on in the play uh, by watching Branagh's Hamlet. And then I also, um, and this is a product of my age, I loved Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. uh, I really, really like that. So, but those are, those are more kind of straightforward in terms of here is the Shakespeare play. We are going to put that on. Is it exciting as a Shakespeare scholar to be like, wow, somebody's like in some ways making a new Shakespeare play by mixing these things up. Yeah, I, I've I've always I mean I've always enjoyed um, and sometimes I've not liked, but I've always enjoyed or been interested in the various takes that people have on Shakespeare. And and one thing I think I'll say something a, a little a little you know Shakespeare nerdy, you know one thing that people need to remember about Shakespeare is that the Shakespearean text itself is not stable. So it's it's like when you say shake. I mean, well, let's take let's take Hamlet for an example. You know, you you cited Branagh's four-hour Hamlet. Well, Branagh got a four-hour Hamlet by basically mashing together three different texts. 
uh, the first folio, the second folio, and the, and the first quarto. Um, so even to say what is a Shakespearean text, what did Shakespeare himself intend, we don't e often even know that. So in a, in a sense, Shakespeare was always adapting Shakespeare. And there's something very Wellesian about that because Wells as a, as a director could not stop tinkering with things. He loved to keep doing things in different ways. He loved to keep revising. So I, I find it, re I, I think the essence of Shakespeare and one of, the, one of the reasons why Shakespeare has lasted for more than 400 years is because he is so adaptable. Um, I mean, you've always got the core of the dialogue and the core of the characters, but there's so many different things to do with it. The, the other thing I would I would observe about Shakespeare and the marriage with cinema is, you know, especially early on in Chimes at Midnight, there's a lot of intercutting between the court scenes and the tavern scenes. Well, that's one of the ways in which Shakespeare himself is cinematic. Uh, Shakespeare's plays are full of, of many small scenes that change quickly. So one of the reasons why Shakespeare works in cinema is because his writing was in many ways cinematic as much as, as it was theatrical. So I think, again, if, if Shakespeare were alive today, you know, he'd be writing for, for, uh, for HBO or the Amazon or, or Netflix. I mean, he, he would love writing for film as much as writing for theater. That's really helpful to hear because I I think I know for me clearly even in what I said earlier like I think of these things as sort of carved in stone where it's like this is the thing and if you deviate from it then you're I guess I'm thinking about it more like a sacred text which mm -hmm. is probably it's good to get out of that that uh mindset. I've also never put on a Shakespeare play to realize well whenever you put on a production you need to interpret and think about well what does this mean and how does that shift how we perform this and these types of things? So that's a helpful, I think that's a helpful mindset to get into as we go forward, watching some, some Shakespeare adaptations is to, is to um, free myself up from the text a little bit, or even from the notion that there is a, the text to, uh, to work with. Um, one of the interesting things reading about this, uh, this film, and then I want to get into some of the actual pieces of the film, because this is, I really loved this. Um, was unsurprisingly this is a, a troubled production in terms of you know getting the pieces put together getting it financed um i was so uh amused by the the treasure island story embedded in this that this is this is the film wells wanted to make but the the spanish uh production company or the spanish financier was like well we're not gonna be able to sell that so why don't would you make treasure island and wells said yes as long as i can simultaneously make the film i want to make and then he proceeded to not make treasure island at all but also like when he would uh cast people he cast them for both and he built sets that's like yeah well this the boar's head in that'll actually work for treasure island so they thought he was making treasure island and he was in fact making this and then there's a a point where the money runs out and they just have to stop production and he has and this is i mean this is not unique to wells um mm -hmm. but but it seems consistent within mm -hmm. uh, a lot of wells so it, it leads me to to wonder I mean, is it a miracle that a film like this exists, that like that it gets made? And to a certain degree, does this make you look back at Citizen Kane and think that's that's a major miracle that that film was made and it, it is it is as amazing as it is too? Like like how did he? I just I, I I listen to these stories and I think I think about his personality, I think about his uh, genius, his confidence, but also the way he. Um, maybe rubs people the wrong way or or the way he's in tension with the industry that finances this. Is it a miracle that anything of his ever got made? You know, Sam, you've, you've just touched on something that's so near and dear to my heart in, in thinking about Orson Welles' career because there is nothing about him that irritates me more than people talking about the failed promise of Orson Welles and the unfulfilled genius because... He, at every turn after Magnificent Ambersons, had to fight against a system that was not congenial to his particular genius. I think, I think his life in some ways was truly tragic in the classic sense of, of tragedy in that he had a certain genius, he had a certain ability that inevitably ran up against systems that were not congenial to the way he worked. 
a lot of people said that he had a self-destructive streak and it certainly is true as i said earlier he loved to tinker he didn't like to finish projects if he didn't if he didn't have to he had to hustle his whole life i mean you know you talk about the interruption in the filming of of chimes it was nothing compared to uh how othello uh, played out which took him four years uh to put that film together so rather than looking at wells as a kind of wastrel i i look at him as a kind of heroic character in the, exactly what you said it is a miracle that these films got made and that they got made as well as they did i mean despite some of the technical imperfections when i consider the limitations of funding and and often equipment that he had it is in fact amazing that he was able to pull off what he was able to pull off i i think that wells's later career um is much more interesting and creative and and vibrant than his hollywood period and i so i and i think chimes at midnight it's interesting you talk about that with citizen kane because those are to me are kind of are the two great um pinnacles of his career and he as you probably know said it towards the end of his life that chimes at midnight was the film that he would want to to propose to get him into heaven yeah can i can i read can i actually just read that quote quote. yeah he says if i wanted to get into heaven on the basis of one movie that's the one i would offer up i think it's because it is to me the least flawed let me put it that way it's the most successful for what i tried to do I succeeded more completely in my view with that than with anything else. Yeah, you know, in, in that statement, Wells kind of exemplifies, there's a, there's a great quote from uh, Rama, one of Robert Browning's poems. He says, a man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for? Um, and it's like Wells was, oh, I mean, Wells is the classic visionary artist. He had this picture in his head of how things should look, a picture in his head of how things should sound. And he was, always always pursuing that and that's part of the reason why he was always he had a hard time finishing things because he didn't couldn't imagine how they could actually be finished exactly as he wanted them and chimes at midnight came closest for him so if we think about if we think about wells if you could uh transport him to any time period in the um in the history of filmmaking is there a time that would have been more amenable to the type of filmmaker that he was in the same way you said like, well, if Shakespeare is alive today, he would love actually to write for HBO or something like that. Like, is there, is there a time where the, the film industry would have been more open to someone like him or is it just, it, it has never actually been built for someone like him. Yeah. I think, I think there's two answers to, to that question. Um, one which wells himself gave which really surprised me i can't remember where i ran across this but but wells said that he actually came to hollywood a little bit too late because he thinks there was a time when he could have just been sort of off in the corner making little b movies that nobody would mess with um i think he's wrong about that i don't don't think hollywood would ever have tolerated somebody like wells although there are directors john ford for example he found a way around a lot of the studio control uh but wells wells wasn't that way part of it was wells temperamentally couldn't work on films the way hollywood wanted him to work on films i mean he lost control of the magnificent ambersons because rather than staying through the editing process he went off to do something else in South America to start a documentary he never finished called It's All True uh, and left Robert Wise to edit Ambersons and and the studio didn't like how it was going, et cetera, et cetera, took the film away from, from Wells and butchered it. I tend to think, and this is maybe an easy answer, I tend to think that, yeah, if Wells had been born uh, in in the 70s and started working in the 80s and 90s um, with all the kind of cheap digital equipment we have. I mean, in a way, I think, and this isn't to compare their, them as equal in, in genius, but he's he would kind of be Steven Soderbergh. It's exactly who I thought of. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think he would have been Steven Soderbergh. He would have said, "Okay, you know, here's a film, here's here's a film for a mass audience, maybe, but then let's shoot something on an iPhone, you know, let, let's 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 shoot something on digital." I I think I think Wells could have had a really amazing career, but at the same time, Sam, what I think about with people like Wells is Wells needed difficulties, like the Magnificent Emerson story. He created that difficulty for himself. So there was something about Wells that you could call kind of self-defeating. There was something about Wells where he had to 
he had to do things things in the hardest way possible, even if he ended up suffering a kind of defeat. Hmm. Well, let's di- let's dive into the movie itself um, because this is the kind of thing where we could just talk a- around it without <laughs> talking about it specifically. The first thing is. Uh, there's sort of two directions I want to go. I either want to think about this movie visually or, or I want to think about it in terms of um, kind of narratively and the mm-hmm. the and, and some of the performances. So let's start with that and then we'll go back to visual because mm-hmm. I will just say this is a gorgeous movie. Mm-hmm. I, I was not ready for it to look as good as it did. Um, so but but we'll get to that. Uh, the f- first thing that struck me is this is a very funny movie. <laughs> yes. um, and I, I wasn't I, I guess you know, and maybe this is sort of Shakespeare bias. Like I was, I wasn't, and I know Shakespeare's funny and he writes comedies and his comedies are very funny, but I feel like Wells got to the core of what was funny about this because even though um, I'll use two people that, that watching this as an example. So my daughter watched it with me, had no background and I didn't tell her anything about like, hey, here's who Henry the fourth is. Here's who Henry the fifth is. Here's who Falstaff is. We just watched it. And I knew the I knew the I knew what where the story was headed, and I roughly knew the characters a little bit, um, but I didn't know any of the dialogue. So like some of the the witty language like just got slipped through my fingers. Mm. At the same time, it is such a clearly funny performance. Um, a lot of the stuff in the boar's head, a lot of just the 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 turn of phrase that I the stuff I was able to pick up on. I mean, it was, was, is very funny. And then the other part of Wells performance, the physicality of his performance is astonishingly funny at times. Mm -hmm. And I think, I I assume he means it to be, Mm -hmm. um, especially at the battle of Shrewsbury, (laughs) uh, Falstaff in that, I mean, he looks like, like, uh, like a tank or a robot or something like it just, it looks, it's so funny to see him like rush, rush around. I mean, he's both hiding and trying to like be in particular, uh, be away from particular things and get to particular things. So it's like this battle's happening and he's off separately doing this. And it is, I laughed out loud at, at his physicality. Um, but also there is his physicality. There, there's at least one moment where it's not a menacing moment, but I realized also the physical power of him mm-hmm. um, at the end of the battle of Shrewsbury after um, Hotspur has been killed. When, when, when uh, Falstaff walks up with hot carrying Hotspur's body and he drops mm-hmm. it down. And I just realized like, Oh, this like big hulking jolly, this big jolly fat man is also potentially has the potential to be hulking and menacing. Cause like mm-hmm. he sort of handles that body. Like it's nothing <laughs> to, and like, and I just thought, I mean, and, and that is a, a quick fleeting moment, but um, it made me, it made me, it sort of gave me another aspect to thinking about, uh, about this character. Uh, but I, I just thought that performance, uh, his performance was great and funny and, um, and then, you know, I thought the relationship between he and, and Prince Hal, I, I really, really was drawn to that as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, Wells is really a great comic actor. And one of the reasons why I think he's a great comic actor is, um, you know, he, he had a reputation for being kind of, you know, egotistical, but actually he's got no pride. I mean, he, he has no, he has no trouble um, making sure that his his corpulence is all on on full display because it's so, so essential for Falstaff. But he's he's perfectly happy to look ridiculous. Um, and one of the comments that Falstaff makes is one of my favorite Shakespearean comments, and it kind of sums up how Wells approaches him. And he says that I am not only witty in myself, but the cause of wit in other men. So in other words, I can make you laugh, and you can laugh at me. And I think he perfectly captures that about about Falstaff. Well, one of the things that that I read when he was uh, talking about who Falstaff was and and mm-hmm. how he wanted to perform him is, is he was he wanted to be very clear that Falstaff is funny, but he's not uh, he's not merely a he's not a clown, mm-hmm. but he's funny because he's funny to the people around him. And he's like, so that's the way he wanted to do the comedy of Falstaff is like. Falstaff is the type of person who makes the people around him laugh. Now, sometimes it's because, uh, like the great scene after the after the the robbery, when 
he doesn't realize that it was it was Hal and, and the other guy who um who robbed him and he just keeps exaggerating that story. Like it's that was another moment where I just laughed out loud. It was it was so it was so funny. So it's he's both amusing the people around him and for Prince Hal, Prince Hal is laughing at him because he's like, I am about to point out how ridiculous you are and how ridiculous you sound to anyone who knows the truth. So I just feel like like even that stuff is 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 fairly well layered in that performance. Yeah, and of course he's, he's, he 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 saves himself by saying that of course he knew it was Hal. Of course he knew it. The lion knows the prince. He and uh, <laughs> yeah, he 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 ran away by instinct. I think is 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 the way he puts right. it. Right. Well, you know, you know, Wells famously called Falstaff um, the greatest conception of a good man, the most completely good man uh, in all of drama. And he was kind of picking up on a W.H. Auden characterization of Falstaff as a kind of Christ figure, which strikes people as a very strange idea. But I think that what Auden, Auden was getting at was the idea that he is kind of the embodiment of incarnation. Uh, and when Wells calls him good. He says um, in another interview, and this would have been in the 60s, so this is the, the context. He says Falstaff is good in the sense that the hippies are good. Um, the faults are trivial, uh, and, and, the, and the goodness is kind of essential. So, I mean, you kind of have to readjust your, 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 your ethical barometer to determine what he means by good in this sense. But uh, part of what he's saying is, is that the faults are not vicious faults uh, that, that, that he has, that he's fundamentally good-hearted in his attitude towards the people around him now a lot of what i read and even uh, this is from reviews both contemporary and and modern reviews and also interviews with wells there's always this thing that points to like falstaff is the uh is the role that wells was born to play there's a lot of uh a lot of that in there that like this is the character he most wanted to play i mean uh there you know he he multiple times put on or attempted to put on productions of stage productions of what would later become Chimes at Midnight, the mm -hmm, film, mm -hmm. with him in the role of Falstaff. Um, why is? Do you agree that Falstaff is a perfect role for Wells, and and why do you think that is? First of all, let me pick up on what you said about different perform uh, the different stage versions of this, because in a sense, one of the reasons why this is an appropriate crown to his career is this is really the work that he worked on the longest, right? So it's going back to when he was a schoolboy at the Todd School when he was 15 years old, and he put together an amalgamation that he called the Winter of Our Discontent, which wasn't only the Henriade, it was also Richard II, Richard III, and Henry VI. And then that became Five Kings in the late 30s, which was a complete flop, uh, never even really got off the ground. And then in 1960, he put on what he then called Chimes at Midnight, which kind of precedes the, 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 the film. And Keith Baxter was in that stage production in Dublin and Belfast, also a complete flop. In fact, some nights he wouldn't even put on a performance. He'd just come out and, re and read from various great works uh, of literature. Um, but I, I think to think about Wells and, uh, and Falstaff, I think actually Roger Ebert did a pretty good job of talking about that. Um, talking about the fact that both of them are long lived and they live too well, you know, gourmandizers. Um, they were at odds with the powers that be. One of the really interesting books I've read about Wells' career is called uh, Orson Wells Against the System, the various ways in which Wells was always kind of at odds with whatever system it might be that he needed to go up against in order to get his films made. Uh, they're both constantly in debt. Um, they both knew disappointment. Uh, they both valued friendships deeply and, and had some friendships that turned on them most famously with Wells, uh, John Hausman. Uh, his original collaborator in, in the Mercury Theater, they had a really great falling out. He had a great falling out with Michael McLeamore, who collaborated with him in Othello. So I think, and at the same time, when Wells was friends with somebody, it was it was a deep friendship. And people who were friends with Wells, you know, talked about how generous uh, and, and wonderful he could be. So I, I think there's a I, I think one of the reasons he likes Falstaff is he he is Falstaffian, not just in his bulk, but in the way he lived life so large. Uh, great errors and yet great achievements at the same time. Well, I think that's interesting, um, especially in terms of, I mean, you, you just use the word not only in terms of his great bulk and like how his physicality is so, in Chimes at Midnight, is so perfect for Falstaff. But in 1939, when, the fi when Five Kings was getting put together, that's not what Orson Welles looked like. No. But he was still, but but it was still like 
Falstaff was still the char- a character that he was 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 really drawn to. I also uh, reading a little bit, and, and you've obviously read more Wells biography. Um, the the story of Falstaff's abandonment. I mean, Wells points mm-hmm. to this as a story about a. Uh, a, a friendship betrayed, uh, you know, this, this, this sort of story of abandonment and to the point where he says that he thought Falstaff's abandonment scene where, where Henry turns his back on Falstaff as the, this, like one of the most powerful things Shakespeare writes. And, and essentially that this film starts with that scene and then it works to say, how do we earn that scene almost mm-hmm. is, is kind of the, the way he thinks about this. The, the fact that that is also a story within his own life um, mm-hmm. where, where uh, so I read reading a little bit about his father mm-hmm. that, that Wells actually has a moment when he's 15, when mm-hmm. some of the uh, surrogate father figures in his life, basically, because his, uh, his father is a Falstaffian figure as well. Mm-hmm. And they basically say, you need to cut him out of your life. Right. Um, and he needs to make that choice. And he does that. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you look at Wells, own children, they do that to him mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or, or are instructed to do that to him. So this is a, this is a, a motif throughout his life too. That's which, which is interesting to say that, that this leads him to be particularly drawn to, to that character. And then that moment, that moment of, of like, making this profound life decision to say, okay, I am going to put my past, this part of my past away, this relationship away. Um, and that, that sometimes that he's on been on both ends of that decision in his life. Um, but also there was a thing of great regret for him. I mean, he felt like that was part of what killed his father was, was that abandonment. So um, I, I, I I find it interesting that he he found this character to that that sort of embodied so much of that. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Sam. I think that in a sense, um, he had been Prince Hal, and and he would rather be Falstaff. So there's a sense in which he understands Hal. He understands why Hal would be in that position, but um, he would rather be Falstaff given the choice. Um, I have a, a a Shakespeare question for you related to this. How big of how big of a character is Falstaff in any one of those the the plays that he's I mean, like? Is he a is he a major character in Henry the Fourth one and two? Yeah, he dominates, but he dominates the plays, especially part one. Um, which if you're in, if you're curious in the film, part one basically ends at Shrewsbury. Uh, and then part two starts after that, and so you know, and and that's one of the disappointments of the king is that at the end of at the end of Shrewsbury, you think, oh, okay, now Hal's going to be in the court, but no, he ends up right back in the tavern. No, Falstaff dominates the the, the play to the extent that when I Shakespeare, and I try to limit myself to about nine plays because less is more with Shakespeare. I always got myself in a dither over over which history plays to use <laughs> because I felt like if I didn't use Henry the Fourth Part One, my students would meet would miss out on Falstaff. But that wasn't, in my mind, the best of the history plays. So, um, but you know, I mean, he's such a huge character that famously, you know, well, uh, Shakespeare writes an entire play for him in Mary Wives of Windsor, uh, and decides to leave him out of Henry the Fifth. Um, because otherwise, that shift in tone from the Henry the Fourth Part One and Two, and the and the new Hal as as King Henry, it's not going to work without Falstaff there. So that's how you just get, and that's where Henry the Fifth comes in and chimes at midnight with the report of his death. That's exactly what happens in Henry the Fifth. He doesn't show up. So is is the the sort of abandonment scene? Is that at the end of Henry the Fourth? That's at the end of Henry II? Part Two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I will say one of my big takeaways from what from watching this is those are just plays I just need to go read this summer. I, I haven't I haven't read those. I'm again I'm a huge Henry the Fifth fan, so I just feel like well I just I just need to read Henry the two Henry the Fourth plays because um, I I was enamored with uh, with the Falstaff character, but I'm sort of curious to think about that the the play is he's not the central figure in those plays though. Is um... he? Well, you know, the, 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 the plays are structured in a way just the way the film is. And now the film obviously tilts it more towards Falstaff, but the plays have that same kind of um, uh, interchange between court and tavern. Okay. And so, I mean, I, I haven't counted lines, Sam, but I would guess in, in those both of the Henry plays, I would guess that Falstaff has probably as many lines as Hal. 
and and I suspect as many lines, if not more, than Henry. Okay. So, um, as you look at this film, are there other performances other other than Wells that stand out to you? Um, yeah, I, th- I think I think Keith Baxter is a is a very good Hal, um, and Wells said he wouldn't he wouldn't make the film without Baxter uh, as his Hal. There were other people that wanted to play Hal, but he only wanted Baxter. I think I think he's wonderful. Um, what can you say? John Gielgud is John Gielgud. Um, <laughs> I really like Margaret Rutherford uh, in her in her in her role as uh, you know the keeper the keeper of the tavern, um, and then. Norman Norman Rod uh, Norman Rodway as as Hotspur does it does a really nice job. Hotspur is a great role, uh, and and I think he he almost overacts just the point that he's supposed to as Hotspur because that's the way Hotspur is. Uh, that's the, exactly the way Shakespeare writes him, and people within within the play are commenting on how how uh, over o- overblown he is. He's histrionic, and I think he really captures that. Yeah, I will say Keith Baxter was the the other performance that stood out to me. And I was this morning I, I looked him up because I was like, well, what else did he do? Mm. And not much. I mean, he did a lot of TV work. Um, but I I came out of this feeling like, well, that guy's a movie star. Like like mm. that like he should just I, he I, I I don't know I I there's something magnetic about him in this movie um, that I just sort of assumed I was going to look at you know. Uh, you know, 20 year career after that in movies. And it really, it really isn't. So, um, so that was a, sort of a great, a great find for Wells, I think, because I think that's a role you have to get right. And he, and it's, you have to thread the needle of somebody who you believe as being sort of the playful character that he is at the beginning, but also by the end that he's has a, w- without him being really central in the movie that you, you get enough of the, uh, tension he has between these two father figures and the choice that he makes and and so yeah i i really i i was 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 really really impressed with him um i assume this movie gets better as you rewatch it and as you get more comfortable or more familiar with mm-hmm. um with plot and with uh with dialogue yeah 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 that that's a really good way to think about it sam yeah and uh yeah it, it's one of those movies that you really, yeah, you can watch it many, many times because you notice new things. You become more familiar with with what's going on. You hear the dialogue better. Yeah, absolutely. And and you get used to the rhythm of it. You know, Shakespeare, um, uh, Wells, Wells, um, Wells said famously that films are created in the editing room. Um, and he actually edited this film a little more quickly than he wanted to because he wanted it ready for can. Um, but you know, there's a there's an editing rhythm. Uh, in in this film where sometimes you feel like you know the cuts are so fast and it's almost disruptive uh especially when it seems to be a little bit at odds with the dialogue and so i think that's an element of, of well as you get more comfortable with it's not quite as extreme as what he did in othello but it's it's pretty similar it's almost like an mtv editing was the way i think about it yeah i will say I, at the very beginning of the movie i was unsettled because uh there's a lot of characters introduced really quickly and i was i just had this moment of panic of like do i need to know who all these different people are and then i realized you know there's really about five people i really need to know who they right, are right and once i once i realized that then i sort of settled in so i think watching it again i could i could from from the very beginning to say just listen to what people are saying you already know who the people are now um and there's there's no easy way to do that i mean i feel like that's a, a common thing with shakespeare too is is someone will get referenced and he's like, is that a name I need to know? Or is that something that just doesn't matter for what I need to know right now? Um, well, in, so, her, so- in, in her contemporary review, uh, looking at a, at a print that probably wasn't as good as what we watched, especially in terms of the sound syncing, Pauline Kale said, uh, hang in there, uh, hang in there through the first 20 minutes. Uh, it's worth it. Yeah. I want to pivot to thinking about this uh, visually as a movie, because as I said, I think this was a, was a gorgeous, gorgeous film. Um, there's, there are some things in it that it's like, oh, that's, uh, there's some citizen Kane, the types of, some types of things you saw in citizen Kane, some of the deep focus, some of the, a character in extreme foreground. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, uh, a lot of the the modern reviews talked about this as something that like he, he takes, takes out soliloquies and makes them monologues where you're Mm -hmm. always having somebody listening to the person doing this. Um, and then they're usually in the shot. Yeah. Um, except for Henry the Fourth, 
uh, the, the king where you assume that there are people in the room as he's <laughs> sitting alone on this. Um, I was, I think the first moment when I, when I sort of was on board with how pretty this movie was is in the robbery scene. Mm. Um, there's some awesome. great tracking shots where they're going through the trees. Um, a lot of camera movement in this. Um, that was, uh, th- th- that was really amazing. And, and I think also the, and you mentioned this when we talked about Kane that like that this is really a black and white movie <laughs> that there and he even wanted to initially go more extreme with yeah, that yeah, yeah um but but I th- I I am increasingly appreciating the the stark black and white in in some in some of those scenes especially some of the outdoor scenes um, that that is that is an effect that I find really really visually striking. Um, and then the interiors. I think the the to me the boar's head is fine, and it's set up for really kinetic, like moving around. But I thought the interiors in the castle mm. were, and there's there's a great sh- tracking shot of uh, Henry coming or uh, Henry the Fourth coming down the stairs, and it's a really long shot. And I, I as we've been doing this project, there I can just po- I can think of certain moments where I just almost stood up because I was excited about it's like. I can't believe how long this shot is going and how, how cool the movement of this is. Um, and that was, that was definitely a moment where I got really excited. Um, and it reminded me of being um, uh, one of the last times I was in England, we took students on an off day to Dover castle mm. um, and which is, you know, uh, roughly time period, you know, to, to where this would have been set. And, it, and, and I was watching when we watched this with my wife, I turned to her, and I said, doesn't this feel like, like Dover? Mm-hmm. And, and it is sort of these spaces that are, that are like almost too big for what's in there, you know, and they sort of dwarf the, I mean, when you look at, at, uh, at King Henry, like he's dwarfed by the castle and he's mm-hmm. the most powerful person here. And even he seems dwarfed by, I mean, one of the reviewers I read talked about how in, in citizen Kane, you know, Wells famously shoots low so you can see the mm-hmm. ceilings, right? So you're almost seeing Kane as he's rising to power, like almost running up against the ceiling where here you have people who, uh, you know, for, for someone like Falstaff and, and maybe even for the Henry's right. That, that they're, they're dwarfed by, by where they're at and, and they, the same low angle shots, except those walls just go up forever. Mm-hmm. And there is a sense that there that there never could that, that that they could never fill that space. Yeah, it's a it's a great kind of visual di- diminishment of the king. Um, that despite all the power he has, he's he's a he's a he's you're right. He's almost always shot as a small figure against his background. Uh, and then and then I think the other the other sequence which we've alluded to is the the Battle of Shrewsbury, um, which I did not expect this to have. Uh, a, a stunning action sequence in the middle of it. Like I, I thought this was going to be a talky stage play feeling. And then, um, I mean, and, and as I read, read about this, a lot of um, in the nineties, a lot of war movies looked back to this. So Brana looks at it for, for Agincourt, for Henry V, saving private Ryan, Braveheart. You looked at what Wells did here, and it is actually. I thought, and I felt good because I actually thought about some of those movies as mm-hmm. I was watching it. I was like, "Huh, this sort of feels like that." Um, and a, amazingly, 180 people or so that they had to, to to film that. And and again, this is where the black and white is so great. Is you get to the end, and it this thing which starts with the stark black and white just becomes this muddy gray as you just have bodies. You have no idea what side people are on. And it's and it just becomes this sort of mud of bodies, and it's this commentary on the fog of war or something like that. Like I, I really, I thought that was it was exciting to watch. Like it was the the it's like the energy ramped up, and it was, it was like we're going to be a different kind of movie for a little while here. Um, uh, and I I I just thought that was I, I wasn't ready for that to happen in that film, and I thought it was stunning. Well, you know, what's, what's really, first of all, I think it's much more of a, uh, I think it's a World War I battle uh, more than a World War II battle. Um, what I find astonishing about it is that Wells at the same time manages to intercut those, and that's exactly the image I had of Falstaff, is this little tank kind of running around. And I mean, he, he manages to put Falstaff there for a kind of comic relief that at the same time only heightens the horror 
of what's actually going or go, going on. The other thing that I would say, I don't know if I've seen any critics say this, but I think this is true. I think that that battle is also his rebuke of um, uh, of uh, Olivier's Henry V uh, from 1944, where uh, somewhere somebody makes a reference to the fact that the Battle of Agincourt in that film is, which is a color film, is on a golf course in Ireland. Uh, and it's pretty. It, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty battle. And I think that both Wells and later Bran are following in his footsteps are rebuking that vision of, of war as kind of this noble, chivalrous uh, effort, as opposed to the really, the literally down and dirty uh, suffering that it actually is. Um, as you think about this film, okay, w one last question, then I want to see any other things you want to talk about. Uh, I just had, I had in my notes a question to ask you, and this is a, um, it's related to this film, but not specifically about the film. Um, how much would you give to be able to hop into a time machine and go back to 1939 and watch the five and a half hour dress rehearsal for Five Kings? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't. I don't. I don't know what I've got to offer for that uh, proposal, Sam. But I, yeah, I, I, I'd give a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, just that. as a fan of Orson Welles, to just be like, amazing. You know, because because I, my sense is the the performance, like that's probably the apex of of the little that they performed that yeah. the audience was like, here's the full blown version of it. Cause they did it. And then people realized, wait a minute, this is five and a half hours. And this it's not, <laughs> it's all these plays put together. Like, I, but I bet that was, there was, I bet there was something magical about that. Cause I wonder if in Wells head, he even thought this is my one chance to actually perform this. And it's never going to get to be this. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, Wells to, to, to be honest, I mean, Wells had failures that he brought on himself. I mean, it's like, you know, I know that for that for the Five Kings, they had this ro rotating stage uh, that he designed, and and then it became completely out of sync with the action because he decided to shorten it. And it's like, it, it's it's almost as though he just thinks, let's try this, and then and then we'll see whether it works or not. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing I want to just add in terms of Wells's uh, theatrical career, which was fairly unsuccessful, uh, he was pretty skillful at creating these theatrical events that were disasters like he did in 80 days around the world that was a disaster uh and chimes at midnight was a disaster in 1960 that was his last stage role that was the last time he appeared on stage are there other things you want to talk about with this film yeah i, I just want to i want to get back to the one of your opening questions sam about you know is this shakespeare or is this wells um um, Michael Andereg wrote a really good book called Cinematic Shakespeare, and he also wrote a really good book uh, called uh, Shakespeare Wells and Popular Culture. But he points out that what Wells does with Shakespeare is he takes that his cinematic career is unified by a set of themes that he kind of borrows from Shakespeare. And I think you see these in Kane, and you see these in Chimes at Midnight, and a lot of the films in between. One is the use and abuse of power, the relationship of love to betrayal. If you think about um, Cain and Jedediah's relationship, for example, and the feeling sense he's been betrayed. Uh, and then a really important one is the notion of there's this new world, which is kind of cold and, and sterile and, and lacks human qualities. It's replacing a golden age, kind of largely imaginary past. Uh, it's one of the ways in which The Magnificent Ambersons is maybe the most personal of Wells' films, because that's really what The Ambersons is about, is there was this golden past with The Ambersons, and then progress represented by the automobile and other things kind of eclipses that. And Wells famously said that Falstaff for him represented a merry old England, uh, which may or may not have existed, but the important thing is that it exists in our imagination. So it's kind of like what we used to... When I was uh, teaching Christianity and Western culture with Paul Reasoner, he would always lecture on the Golden Age syndrome uh, and the idea that whether the Golden Age actually existed or not, it's an important uh, archetype in our minds. And that's what Falstaff represents for, um, uh, for Wells. And it's why the film opens with that dialogue with, with Master Shallow. We've heard the chimes at midnight. That's, a, you know, that's an image of revelry, of joy, of, of, of pleasure. Uh, that's somehow uh, been destroyed or eclipsed. That's interesting because um, it makes me wonder, like if if uh, I, I 
I guess I don't know. I, I know the uh, the story of the life of Henry for a while, but I don't know the the full story of the life of Henry V. Um, uh, imagining him in old age, if in fact he made it to a, a kind of old age, um, thinking back on his days with Falstaff and and the decision of and, and that decision and like like what is gained and what is lost by that is really mm-hmm. uh, is really and and when you when you do that, then it's easy to start to think about uh cane connections as well uh mm-hmm. yeah no i really really like that anything else with this movie before we move to next week oh just just just, just one one more influence that this movie had and that is if you've ever seen gus van sant's my own private idaho from 1991 that's a loose adaptation of henry the fourth parts one and two uh inspired in some ways by what wells did with the place so hmm. there's no shakespearean dialogue in there but it's just it's the character and the plot idea so uh, so what do you have for us for, for next week? Well, as you, as you said, Sam, I propose a little series of Shakespearean adaptations, and I want to do as different adaptations as I can think of. So um, the next one is uh, Michael Amoreda's uh, 2000 version of Hamlet. Uh, and of course, if you go on Amazon Prime, you're going to be presented with hundreds of Hamlets. So this is the one with Ethan Hawke uh, as, uh, as, as Hamlet. So, and Amoreda is another one of those kind of art house filmmakers uh turning his hand to shakespeare it is shakespearean dialogue so it's not uh it's not it's not uh removed from the text uh but it is a very different kind of take on hamlet than you maybe you've seen before well i'm excited because i've seen a lot of cinematic hamlets but i've not seen uh, i've not seen this one and unlike chimes at midnight this is uh hamlet's a play that i at least have uh, I, I've read a few times and have a working knowledge of, so I, I, I think the experience will be different in terms of that, um, and it'll make it'll make watching it a little bit differently. But I'm I'm very very excited about this. I like Ethan Hawke a lot, so I, this should be uh, this should be great. And, very- and you'll, you'll be happy to know that uh, Bill Murray will also turn up. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Uh, Barrett, thank you so much for, uh, for recommending this film and having this, uh, this conversation. I, this makes me even more want to see more Orson Welles work just because, um, I, I wasn't ready for, for how good this movie looked. I also knew this had, because of the sort of, um, sense of kind of troubled production. I was, my thought was maybe visually, maybe this was going to be very good in terms of like the, the language and some of this stuff, but compromised visually. And I actually, I thought this movie looked as good as, as it was constructed and performed yeah. and acted. And, uh, uh, it makes me want to see even, you know, this is, this is referred to as sort of a flawed masterpiece from him. And it's like, I'm on board for, for Wells now, like anything, if I can, cause if you can see hints of, hints of that genius even in something that's maybe not always everything it was intended to be i'm still on board for wanting to see that well that'd be touch of evil that'd be the next one for you to watch um sam and then i would say the trial uh those would be two more good ones all right well thank you barrett we will be back next week to talk about the 2000 ethan hawk film hamlet in the video store 